Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Aria Nakisa. You are most welcome, sir. It's an honor to be here, Paul. I really enjoy watching your content. This is a great platform, and I look forward to sharing my research. Fantastic. Um, Aria, if you didn't know, is a professor of Islamic studies and anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis in the USA. I've actually been there, but St. Louis, not to the university. It's a lovely city. Um, He obtained his PhD from Harvard University. Now, he's the author of a recent and fascinating article, which I've read, entitled Islam and the Cognitive Study of Colonialism, the Case of Religious and Educational Reform at Egypt's Al-Azhar, published by Cambridge University Press, no less, which I will link to in the description below. And I do encourage people to actually read it. It's a fascinating study. So, Ariel, would you like to introduce us to the main themes of your paper? Okay. Well, I hope if anyone, ha- if you have the opportunity, you're able to directly read the paper yourself. Um, but I'll try and give a simplified, a straight, vo- straightforward version of what is in the paper. And then, of course, if anyone needs additional details, they can consult the original source or uh, perhaps Paul can ask me some clarificatory questions. Uh, I should also add in one other clarification. Uh, I can see from the comments that some might some some of the audience might believe that I'm a traditional Islamic religious scholar that I'm claiming such a status. Uh, and although I although I respect such scholars, I'm not one myself. I rather, I'm trained primarily as an anthropologist and historian, and I work in an Western academic setting. Uh, so that is the perspective that I will be uh, presenting here. Okay. So. Uh, My article explores a particular issue which might be described as follows. Uh, Modern Western colonialism was a system or perhaps is a system of power which uses specific technologies and laws and forms of education. And the question that I address in the article is how has Western colonialism transformed the psychology of Muslim populations, in particular Muslim views on religion and morality? And although my article focuses on Muslim populations, I think the underlying topic has broader relevance. Uh, Thus, the material in the article is relevant to the broader question of how modern forms of governance have transformed the psychology of all populations across the globe. Um, Today, the study of psychology and psychological transformations is very much interlinked with the field of cognitive science, which is the interdisciplinary scientific study of the human mind. Uh, Cognitive science research draws on a range of fields, including uh, biology, psychology, neuroscience, economics, cultural anthropology, uh, and archaeology. Cognitive science is distinctive in that it posits that the human mind has a particular biological structure, and this structure gives rise to certain patterns of thought and behavior uh, that recur across different societies um, uh, in the world and throughout human history. 
Uh, for instance, uh, cognitive science posits that human beings have certain biologically rooted intuitions about morality and about religion. And intuition can be thought of as a type of belief that is simply felt to be correct. So it doesn't require additional forms of evidence. And usually, in fact, uh, many human intuitions are largely unconscious. Uh, in many ways, the notion of biologically rooted intuitions is similar to the classical Islamic idea of fitrah. So yes. <laughs> stop yes. for a moment and ask if there are any. If, Paul, please feel free to jump in. No, if no, no. I, I don't want to jump in all the time. I, I'm uh, fascinated. But I, you, you mentioned the fitrah thing. I'm not sure you mentioned that in any expanded way in your article, uh, because it was a more kind of um, scientific, psychological. But the fitrah is a, a Muslim concept found in the Quran, obviously, in the Hadith, referring to that natural disposition, this um, uh, human nature that we have orientated to. Uh, to God and to a moral universe and so on. And uh, that's the first thing that came to my mind when I was reading your article, Fitra, Fitra, I've heard this before <laughs> in Islam. Yeah, exactly. We can think of some different examples of intuitions, uh, for instance, moral intuition. So we have an intuition that we should care for our family members, that we shouldn't lie. And if someone were to ask you, well, why do you believe that we should care for our family members or we shouldn't lie? You would respond, well, in one sense, it makes sense. It feels correct. It seems intuitively compelling. Uh, so that's really what we're talking about when we're addressing this uh, notion of intuitions. Of mm. course, a, a legitimate question that someone might have is, well, how do we know that people have particular intuitions? Anyone can make any claim uh, about the existence of specific intuitions. What, what is the evidence? So there are a bunch of different types of evidence that are uh, used in cognitive science research. One of the most important involves experiments involving, or it involves experiments with uh, children. So between five to 10 years of age, and sometimes even earlier, uh, children in all societies at specific ages develop very specific intuitions regarding morality and uh, religion. And so you can ask these children about their intuitions, you can ask them questions about, well, do you believe that it's morally good uh, or it's morally required to care for your family members? And if these children say yes, well, that's a type of evidence that this these intuition, that that particular intuition, moral intuition might have a biological basis. You can also look at cross-cultural surveys. So if we see that people in most cultures or all cultures believe that stealing is wrong or lying is wrong, these are evidence that perhaps people have a biological intuitions related to these subjects, moral intuitions. You can even look in some cases at animal behavior. Uh, for instance, suppose you see that animals, especially animal species that resemble human beings like chimpanzees and bonobos, uh, engage in certain forms of behavior, like they care for their family members. That would be some evidence that perhaps there is this intuition uh, that uh, people should care uh, for family members. Can, can, um, I, just, can I just ask, uh, as, as you permitted me very kindly to uh, ask questions, sure. um, in terms of religious beliefs, what, what has psychology or anthropology uh, found cross-culturally in terms of religious belief in children? Is it something that is indoctrinated into them they wouldn't otherwise have? Or is it something that apparently emerges naturally and instinctively, perhaps, uh, from the child at a very early age? Has there been any uh, research done on this? And what has that shown? Yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great topic. In fact, it, it's a mixture of both. Um, so when you go ahead and you look at cross-cultural studies, you can see that there are certain basic types of religious beliefs that are found in societies across the world. Uh, and on top of that, when you ask children 
particular questions like who created uh, the universe or what happens after you die, uh, they give specific types of questions which indicate that they're inclined towards specific religious beliefs. So research on this topic has indicated that among the most common religious beliefs are belief in some kind of spirit being, so some kind of invisible entities with minds which mm -hmm. cause events in the world. Uh, and these can be, but these are understood beliefs about these spirit beings are molded by culture. So for instance, if we talk about Islamic cultures, there's the notion of jinn. So they might be a jinn. jinn. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. They might be conceptualized as angels. They might be conceptualized as uh, ghosts. They might be conceptualized as lesser gods. Uh, so there is this notion of these beings with minds that are individuals and that are affecting the world, but the form that it can take is, but, but how the, that will be shaped in different ways by in different societies. Another example is life after death. Hmm. So many uh, cultures have the notion, uh, so, so people appear to be inclined from childhood towards the notion that after your physical body dies, your mind or your soul, uh, which is somehow separate from your body, uh, persists. However, different societies have different understandings of, of what that persistence looks like. So when we're talking about Abrahamic uh, religions, especially uh, in the Islamic case, you get the notion that the immortal soul is going to persist in heaven or in hell, depending on its deeds. But if you look at uh, Hinduism or Buddhism, you have the notion of a reincarnation in accordance mm -hmm. with the principle of karma. So these are different notions of how the afterlife, uh, what the afterlife looks like. From the standpoint of Islam, one of the most interesting uh, inclinations that people have is they apparently have an inclination to believe that the world was created by kind of a supreme spirit being with a particular purpose, with, with, with a purpose, with goals, with aims. Um, these are relevant in, for instance, the argument by design, which has historically been an a, a, a argument which recurs across different cultures, uh, Greco-Roman, uh, Christian, uh, Hindu, Islamic, in um, arguing for the existence of God. So there is, so to answer your question, in short, there is this interplay of uh, biologically rooted psychology and cultural teaching. So you're saying this, there's this generic belief, which is, which is in its cultural manifestations, has particular details to it. So you mentioned alternative understanding with jinn or angels or whatever. But nevertheless, we're dealing with created entities who are part of the unseen or maybe sometimes seen. Um, so, but I just want to clarify how universal 
is this? Are these phenomena? I mean, do, are we finding in all kinds of societies, as far as as far as research has told us, or just in religious societies, explicitly religious, like Muslim societies, for example? Uh, so it depends. So in terms of the exact prevalence of beliefs, uh, they vary in. Uh, how common they are. Usually, though, for instance, if you talk about, for instance, a, a biologically related, a biologically rooted trait, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's found in every single society because people can be inclined towards adopting a particular belief, but not adopt a belief. So for, to give an example, one moral intuition that people have is incest avoidance, that, that engaging in incest is wrong. But there are certain societies and indeed certain religions like Zoroastrianism, which have, which have, which, which have uh, endorsed a sibling uh, marital and sexual relations or child-parent uh, sexual relations. It's similar when it comes to religious beliefs. So the ones that are really found uh, everywhere is you have belief in spirit beings, uh, belief in the afterlife, arguably, at least before the pre-modern period, these are universals. There's not one society without them. If you talk about belief in some kind of supreme God, this is very, very common in all types of pre-modern societies, although the exact rate is debated because you have these historical databases and they might estimate something like a 30 to 60 percent of societies on record. Uh, develop uh, this particular belief. So humans are clearly inclined towards this. If, for instance, if you looked at 7th century Arabia, uh, there is a general polytheistic trend. Mm. On the other hand, there's a minority trend associated with the Hanifs, where there's this kind yeah. of very strong uh, uh, focus on a supreme creator being. And, and also, you mentioned the 7th century Arabia because the Quran testifies to this, that there's a, a quite common view amongst the the, the so-called polytheists, that there wasn't an afterlife, that the afterlife didn't exist. When you're dead, you're dead. And that's something that Islam uh, reminded them uh, that was, was an afterlife. So that's interesting. That belief there had atrophied or, or, or many of them have forgotten about it. Yeah, so one of the interesting things is there are debates over uh, many of these beliefs in uh, various societies. And for instance, one, and in many cases, uh, there, it's not exactly clear what is being debated. So for instance, one might debate whether the soul persists, uh, but say, so someone might say the soul persists, but there's no eternal judgment. There's no judgment on the basis of good or bad deeds. Another very interesting thing is that even in these pre-modern societies, there are often different currents. So, for instance, within just as within Arabian society, there is not an agreement on everything. Uh, even in many of these hunter-gatherer societies, which are very small in character, there are these different currents and these different beliefs uh, mm. regarding uh, issues. So there is the kind of diversity that you will find as well. Interesting. Anyway, thank you for answering those questions. Well, they're very relevant to the to the overall presentation that I wanted to make, and it helped me clarify a couple of issues. So thank you for those. Thank you. You ask uh, excellent questions. Um, I did want to comment on uh, moral intuitions as well. So I've mentioned some of the most important religious intuitions, but in terms of moral intuitions, I alluded earlier to for instance, moral intuition that you should care for your family or moral intuition that you shouldn't lie. There's also some interesting evidence that people have a moral intuition uh, that uh, individuals are obliged to avoid disgusting substances and behaviors and maintain a state of purity. So those disgusting behaviors include things like, or disgusting substances include things like feces, vomit, blood, uh, and the like. Uh, disgusting behaviors include things like incest, bestiality, and promiscuity. 
An additional uh, intuition that's quite interesting is this notion that you should care for your people and seek to protect its shared customs and forms of life, like you have a moral obligation uh, to do that. Um, once again, intuitions of this type can be found in Islam as well as other religious traditions, although, uh, as we noted earlier, they're culturally shaped. So, for instance, in Islam, when you're talking about how you maintain a state of purity, you're going to get specific rules regarding ablutions and bodily washing like wudu and ghusl. Um, so that element isn't universal or isn't common, those exact, those exact rules of, you know, how many times the sequence in which you do the washing, but the notion that you should wash yourself of excrement and these other things is based in this common intuition. Uh, similarly, this notion that you should care for one's people, care for your people and protect their uh, distinctive way of life. This is in the Islamic tradition, this is shaped. Uh, into a belief that you ha should have loyalty to the overall Islamic nation or ummah, and you should protect the form of life in the form of the Sharia. Uh, mm. So there, yep. once again, you get that interplay between uh, the biologically rooted psychology and then also cultural molding effects. I'm, I'm struck if I made just an observation, and you briefly touched on this in, in your paper, I think. I mean, I, I, I share the very common disgust at the very idea of eating a dog. You know, eating uh, Alsatian, Chihuahua, Great <laughs> Dane, the idea of that is just so evidently, self-evidently repugnant to me. However, I'm also very aware, of course, that there are some societies, perhaps North Korea or Korea or other parts of China, famously, where this is absolutely not the case. And dog is, um, you know, killed and prepared and eaten in marketplaces in, in China, for example. So clearly this must be, given we're all human beings, this must be an example of cultural um, uh, revulsion rather than a fitra-based or biological, bi biologically-based revulsion, perhaps, because it, it seems that otherwise perfectly normal people have completely opposite reactions to eating certain kinds of food. Um, so it, it just struck me as a, a very striking example. It's so self-evident to us that eating dog is wrong and disgusting, uh, that you like the other men, the examples you mentioned. It is not the case. Some people do find it acceptable and perhaps like it a great deal and pay money to do it. <laughs> well, that's that's a great point, and it points to some of the complexities involved mm. in undertaking this type of analysis. But actually, uh, different intuitions are structured a bit differently. So you point to the you point to the issue of food. Uh, so people have done lots of research on food disgust. Uh, and when it comes to food, people have different attitudes towards plants and meats. Mm. So it's not a coincidence that you probably, you don't find the notion of eating any kind of plant, even a plant with which you're very unfamiliar as disgusting. But with respect to meats, you're very sensitive. Right. And this is tied to general theories of pathogen uh, transmission that, for instance, eating uh eating unfamiliar types of meats that your group hasn't traditionally uh, consumed uh, means that you probably don't have immunity towards the pat in vis-a-vis the, uh, -vis the pathogens contained in that meat. Uh, so for that reason, there's a bit of a different rule in terms of how the disgust principle applies to plants as opposed to meats. So you're not going to be disgusted, generally speaking, by minerals or plants, but with respect to the meats, the meats that you're going to feel comfortable with are those which you ingested in childhood and those which members of your social group ingest. 
So in that sense, the meat issue is more culturally shaped, but other form, but eating other types of of products like plant products or uh, plant products or uh, certain kind of minerals like salts and whatnot, uh, there is uh, there, it's a little less shaped by culture. Okay, thank you. Anyway, that's great. Okay, so uh, to continue on with this theme that, uh, yeah, so human religion and morality intuitions shape people's beliefs on these matters, but, uh, but uh, also we have to take into account culture and specifically culture in the form of a tradition. So cognitive science research indicates that humans, human beings by virtue of their biology uh, automatically tend to, uh, or they tend to automatically and unconsciously adopt the beliefs of their social groups. And this process works in a particular manner. So you, so one feels that one is part of a group if one shares in the very distinctive practices which mark off that group from others, including that group's distinctive forms of dress, its dietary rules, its marital customs, and so on. Sharing in a group's distinctive ritual practices is uh, of special importance. So such ritual practices generally involve group members moving their bodies in synchrony, accompanied by music and chanting. So we see these rituals among hunter-gatherer societies when they're dancing around fire. We can also see this with respect to literate uh, religious traditions. So Hindus chanting the Vedas while performing fire sacrifices or Christians chanting psalms or perhaps hymns uh, while you have kind of accompany, accompaniment by church music. Um, and the power of ritual in particular to transform psychology has been established in many experiments. Uh, uh, and they've shown that these that when human beings engage in ritual, it, it even is tied to the secretion of particular uh, hormones like oxytocin, which make which make you feel like you're bound uh, to other people, uh, makes you kind of love uh, uh, other people. So, for instance, oxytocin is also something which is secreted when there's contact between uh, a mother and her child or between two people who are ha- who are being sexually intimate with one another. Um, so when you feel that you're part of a group because you share its practices, its bodily rituals, its chanting, your brain automatically begins adopting or is inclined, more inclined to adopt the beliefs which are characteristic of that group, including its religious and its moral beliefs. And, and this is done, you do this automatically and unconsciously without demanding evidence for those, uh, religious and moral beliefs. Um, Alternatively, another way of describing this is in terms of faith. So it can be said that when you share the practices of a group, this creates faith in the group's religious and moral beliefs. And those religious and moral beliefs are transmitted over time as a type of tradition. So when you participate in a group's practices, what you're really acquiring is faith in their tradition. We can apply this to many different traditions, including the Islamic traditions. So yeah. Muslims are required to have a particular type of faith or iman in the Islamic tradition. And this notion of an Islamic tradition, which is passed down generation after generation, is often discussed by Muslim scholars under the heading of uh, knuckle. So you might say, well, how do Muslims acquire faith in the Islamic tradition? Well, part of this story is by adopting distinctive Muslim practices, of which ritual practices are especially important. 
That's why they're at the core of the Islamic religion. They're, the, they're part of the five pillars. The most obvious example is the five daily prayers where Muslims move their bodies in synchrony while, synchrony, uh, while chanting the Quran, Quran in a melodious fashion, so with tajweed. So hmm. uh, does this mean that all of Islam is simply based on tradition? No. Cognitive science research holds that the mind is complex and a number of different factors combine to uh, combine in the formation of religious and moral beliefs. So two of these factors, there are additional factors, but two of these factors are intuitions and faith and tradition. So if we ask why do Muslims endorse specific theological doctrines like belief in heaven or particular Sharia doctrines like pure purity rules, the answer is complex. Uh, part One of the reasons why they adopt these doctrines is that they are undergirded, reinforced by human intuitions, but also it's partially based on faith in a tradition, which they've acquired by being members of the Muslim community who are practicing a particular set of rituals. Hmm. In reality, this story is more complex uh, than that. If you want to get into a full, if anyone wants to get into a full treatment of that and how it relates to Muslim epistemology, uh, they are advised to look at the article. So, how does all of this relate to Western colonialism, modern Western colonialism? Good question. Yeah, between the late 19th and mid 20th centuries, European states conquered and established control over more or less all Muslim lands. So these included lands in sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia. The European states that took control of these lands were, uh, the most important were Britain, France, the Netherlands, and Russia. And they, when they took over these lands, they ruled them in an authoritarian manner, as a kind of military dictatorship, which is interesting uh, because all of these states, with the partial exception of Russia, were explicitly committed to a liberal ideology. So they justified their conquest of Muslim lands by claiming that this conquest was necessary uh, for the sake of liberalizing their populations. They spoke of such liberalization in terms of civilizational progress or a civilizing mission. So we're going to bring civilizational progress to these Muslim lands. Of course, today, a different terminology is used. Today, people would speak about bringing international development to different lands. And one aspect of that international development is human rights. Today, international development is not coordinated by international European empires. It's more coordinated by the UN, like UN international development uh, efforts. Although in terms of how the UN uh, comes up with its policies, uh, certain countries from the global north or particularly uh, from the west have kind of a larger say uh, in that process. Uh, so these, Muslim, these European states uh, conquered Muslim lands to liberalize them by bringing them a development, including human rights. Uh, they recognized there was going to be resistance, internal resistance to this process in Muslim lands or non-Muslim lands, in Hindu lands, in Buddhist lands, in Amerindian lands. Uh, so in order to reduce this resistance, some measure of authoritarian rule was justified. Uh, if you want a more, uh, if you want a comparable example of how this process, what this process looks like, uh, 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 at least in the early 2000s, it was widely believed that the United States was justified in uh, invading Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, so they need, these countries needed to be conquered and, and liberalized. And this required a period of authoritarian US military rule. So all of these points about colonialism are pretty well known. But what's been given 
uh, less attention is the fact that colonialism did not simply involve military, cultural, and political domination. It also involved a radical psychological transformation of Muslim populations across the globe. And this transformation was tied to uh, this transformation affected uh, Muslim intuitions or, or, or uh, this transformation targeted Muslim intuitions and also their faith uh, and tradition. So how did this transformation occur? Uh, first, let us look at intuitions. So research in cognitive science establishes that human beings have different ways of thinking. So if you're thinking, if you're trying to come up with beliefs, you can rely on your intuitions, you can rely on faith in a tradition. Um, and these ways of forming beliefs are not necessarily based on, don't necessarily require additional forms of evidence. But there's a third type of thinking uh, that is known as critical thinking or analytic thinking, which has been discussed to some extent in traditional Muslim texts under the heading of aqal. Um, so critical or analytic thinking involves doubting. More specifically, it involves doubting claims that are not backed up by kind of additional forms of evidence. So right. in all societies, including Muslim societies, in the past or in the present, people always come to their beliefs in complex ways. So it's always partly based on intuitions. It's always partly based on faith and tradition. It's always partly based on critical analytic thinking. At the same time, there's a balance. So, for instance, if we look at traditional Muslim societies, uh, a key aspect of these societies is a traditional Islamic learning and that of the type that takes place in, let's say, a madrasa or a mosque. And this type of learning strikes a certain balance. So critical analytic thinking is encouraged to some extent. Muslims may criticize or express doubts about history, about various theological or legal positions. And this is reflected in the different schools of Kalam theology, like Asharites or Ahlul Hadith, or a Maturidi a theology. It's also reflected in the kind of debates that you get between the different Islamic legal schools or madhabs. Nevertheless, even though you have critical thinking fostered, cultivated to some extent, uh, it's always restricted so that it doesn't undermine intuitions and faith and tradition. So for instance, people aren't allowed to, in a madrasa context or in a pre-modern Muslim society, start expressing doubts about the existence of angels or the afterlife, because these things are partially based on intuitions and faith and tradition. But one of the things you get with colonial governments is that they establish a new balance in terms of human thought. Uh, so, these Western governments promote Western forms of schooling and they marginalize traditional Islamic forms of learning. So part of the way that they do this is they establish various Western schools and various Western universities. Alternatively, they take existing Islamic schools, either more elementary schools like Qutabs or established institutions like Al-Azhar University. And what they do is they transform them into hybrid institutions where traditional Islamic learning has a place, uh, but really uh, a lot of the education, uh, arguably most of the education functions in accordance with a Western model. Uh, and what this does is this uh, radically alters um, the type of 
uh, consciousness of the type of psychology that is produced by these educational institutions. So you get this amplification, this unprecedented amplification in critical analytic thought. And what this does is it starts fostering doubts about all religious traditions in terms of their theological and their moral doctrines, and ultimately creates populations which are less convinced by and less willing to follow such doctrines. It can be said that Oh, go ahead. No, I just wanted to, I was just reflecting, there's so much I was going to say, I was reflecting when um, I had Professor Dale Martin on, a professor of um, the Bible uh, at, uh, from uh, Yale, and uh, in his first um, lessons to undergraduates, um, uh, he instills the important principle uh, of historical method in his view, which is scepticism, you doubt everything, don't trust anyone, don't trust anything, it, it, it's, you've got to doubt it. And this kind of systematic methodological skepticism is uh, for him, and, and, and obviously it is the case, a, a key um, facet or a, a key principle in the historical critical method. And when that's applied to religions, to their scriptures, to the Bible, Quran, and so on, this, this uh, obviously has a, a very negative effect um, uh, in, in, in my view. But, but I, I like what you say about, I was also reminded about Hadith criticism and um, Jonathan, Professor Jonathan Brown in his marvellous book on Hadith, um, had the privilege of speaking to him as well. He talks about an incredibly sophisticated Hadith criticism using these analytical, critical tools within the Islamic tradition when it came to sifting and testing the authenticity of Hadith, whether or the, or they're Sahih or not. But that was quite different from the Western uh, Western studies of Hadith, um, which developed in the 18th and 19th century, which are much more sceptical overall and produced quite different outcomes when it came to assessments of historical liability of Hadith. And um, the, the, this contrast between the, the Western approach, if you like, and the Islamic approach is not, I think you're saying, it's not black and white. It's not like the Muslim tradition is uncritical. It is to a degree, but it's within a, a framework of given theological a given theological framework whereas the western one is pretty untrammeled and it's kind of all the way through is skeptical the one thing of course it doesn't doubt is its own skepticism sorry to be philosophical it it is kind of we must doubt everything except the fact that we must doubt everything <laughs> um, yeah i mean that's that's a wonderful uh, point i mean skepticism of this type maximum skepticism mm -hmm. actually uh, conflicts with our biological tendencies so biologically human beings have this inclination to not only adopt certain intuitive beliefs, but also respect traditions to always see themselves as operating within the context of a tradition that has been passed on uh, over time. It doesn't mean that you don't have some skepticism, some doubt, uh, but uh, the idea that you could live completely outside of a tradition or the idea that your intuitions uh, should count for nothing in terms of your view of the world is kind of a modern uh, trend that you get in Western universities, precisely because people are biologically resistant to such trends. That's why the th this is very much related to the question of colonialism. So you need to have like a military come in and forcefully go ahead and say everyone is uh, under the threat of violence required to have their children when they are kind of in their most impressionable ages, go to these schools. And what they're what we're going to drill into these children is critical analytic forms of thought. We're going to transform their uh, theology. Or we're, we're going to transform their uh, psychology and in that way produce the type of liberal subjects uh, that are comfortable 
living in a modern liberal uh, society. Uh, so colonialism wouldn't involve violence. It wouldn't involve the need to engage in military invasions if you could just speak to someone and tell them, okay, adopt, adopt a purely rationalistic point of view. But precisely because this is a difficult thing to do, you always need this type of, of rationalism backed up uh, by a military and hundreds of years of uh, social regulation and domination. That's all, that. This is most evident when it comes to colonialism, but even in the West itself. Uh, the West itself is a complex entity with a complex history. So in many ways, the type of challenges that Muslims have faced have been faced by all populations, including Western populations, Christians and Jews in the West. It just happened at maybe a bit of an earlier moment and under somewhat different circumstances. That's very true. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So, so you, you were going to talk about a bit more about um, the case of religious and educational reform at Egypt al-Azhar specifically, which is the, for those who don't know, well, Patrick will explain, it is perhaps the most preeminent, most prestigious university, Islamic university in the world, seen by many people. And it goes back, I don't know, back to the 900s, or 800s, 900s AD. It's been around for a very, very long time, much longer than Oxford or Cambridge, let alone Yale, Harvard or the Sorbonne. It's been around much earlier and continuously up to today. Yeah, so basically, if we want to understand what happens at Al-Azhar, it's tied to kind of the beginnings of modernity in Egypt, which are often dated to the Napoleonic invasion, which happened around 1800. So Napoleon and his army uh, come in. Uh, and then after that, uh, the Egyptian pop, I mean, ultimately, Napoleon isn't successful in establishing a regime in Egypt, partly because uh, the British don't want that. They don't want the French to control Egypt, which would, jeopardize, which would jeopardize British control over uh, India. And the uh, Suez so, Canal, presumably, is quite an important factor. Who controls the access to uh, yeah, the river, um, the, the, the India and so on? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's part of these big geopolitical events that were occurring at the time. But Egyptians uh, recognized that, okay, if we want to defend our lands, uh, we need to have, we need to be more powerful. And the way that power works in the modern world is you need a cert certain levels of economic development, certain types of technologies to defend yourself. Maybe you're completely happy with the way that you're living, uh, or you were completely happy with the way that you were living beforehand, but now uh, possessing these technologies becomes a life or, or death matter. And many Egyptians living in the 19th century were looking over at other parts of the world. So they were looking over what was going on in North America. They were looking at what was happening in Australia and they were saying, if we can't defend ourselves, we're going to be exterminated. Uh, and it was particularly hitting home for many of them because they were looking at Algeria. So Algeria was invaded in the 1830s by the French. And they were thinking, uh-oh, if we're not strong enough, if we don't have a strong enough economy, if we don't have adequate technologies, uh, we're going to be looking at an Algerian situation for ourselves. Uh, just, just to uh, pause on, so you mentioned America, uh, North America, and you mentioned Australia. What happened, of course, there in Australia, the, uh, the, the uh, Aborigines, the, the people who live there, um, what suffered a massive uh, loss of life and in north what became north america uh the, the the peoples the nations that lived there before the british and others arrived uh, and during their arrival were also exterminated or, or experienced massive loss of life and, and and this was seen as a 
uh, obviously a wake-up call to what might happen um, in Muslim countries as well. And then you mentioned the French occupation of Algeria, which is a, a terrible, terrible story, um, which only resolved well, only came to an end uh, within within the living memory for some people, even today. Yeah, so I mean, Alger- the Algerian situation was obviously a, a challenging situation for Muslim populations because it can, over kind of a hundred year period, it resulted, I mean, the exact numbers, maybe one or two million deaths. I need to look at it, but it was also this notion of, it was also kind of an apartheid state of very kind of hardline, uh, secularist, liberal uh, French uh, rule. Um and this really affected how people thought about educational reform. So sometimes one might think, well, the way that Muslim populations, or for that matter, other populations, Hindu, Buddhist, uh, uh, Confucian, uh, the way that populations look at educational reform is they go ahead and they start reading John Locke or Rousseau or uh-huh. John Stuart Mill, and they say, okay, well, you know, maybe maybe they have some good ideas. Let's go ahead and restructure our society. I don't want to say that some people weren't compelled or or didn't find certain texts that were generated in the West to be uh, compelling at some level, Uh, but ultimately what was motivating them primarily is they said, uh, we have an option of being exterminated or at the very least subjected to kind of permanent colonial occupation. The only way that we're going to be able to save ourselves and future generations is to acquire a comparable amount of uh, technology and a comparable amount of economic output. Uh, And apparently this requires new forms of knowledge, which require new forms of education. So to some extent, you have Western rulers imposing this type of education. To some extent, you have pressure from the West causing Muslims to say, maybe if we were just living alone, we wouldn't want to adopt these forms of education. But right now it's an issue of darura. It's a life or death issue. So therefore we need to adopt them. Uh, and the colonial rulers uh, were thinking in these terms. So on the one hand, they wanted Muslims to adopt Western education. On the other hand, they recognized that they had created a political situation where in a sense, there was a lot of pressure for Muslims to do so. So they said, how do we uh, restructure the Muslim mind, well, let's go ahead and take over the educational institution. So this really gets underway in the late 19th and the early 20th century. One key aspect of this, or, or one key institution of this process is Mohammedan Anglo-Oriental College in Northern India, in Aligarh, so Aligarh Muslim University. Uh, so this is established, basically what the British do is they choose a Muslim reformer. So there are lots of Muslims who say, well, we don't want to cooperate with this, but they will choose a Muslim who does agree with it. In this case, it was Syed Ahmed Khan. Very so famous. He's kind of uh, yeah. still a name still remembered today and mentioned many times I've noticed. Um, uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so he's kind of the father of Muslim educational reform in Britain. And what he does is he says, okay, I will go ahead and cooperate with the British authorities to establish a hybrid Islamic Western institution that's going to train scholars and Muslim religious scholars and Muslim elites for the future. I'm going to make sure that Muslim scholars are exposed uh, to these to this Western uh, type of thinking. So that's why it's called Muhammad Anglo-Oriental. So it's Anglo in the sense that there's this Western British component. It's Oriental in the sense that there is the Islamic component as well. 
Mm. Now, what happens in late 19th century India is taken as a model for other parts of the Muslim world, in particular Egypt. So so right at the end of the 19th century or the first years of the 20th century, they say, well, we're going to actually reform Al-Azhar. So Azhar at this time is the most influential Islamic university in the world. They say we also want to create a hybrid institution like what we have established in India. So the British ruler in Egypt, whose name is Lord Cromer, goes ahead and he searches out a partner, in this case, Muhammad Abdu, uh, and they go ahead and reform. So he appoints, uh, with the help of Lord Cromer, he's appointed to this committee that starts reforming Al-Azhar. And basically you get this constant reform of Al-Azhar Kind of the high point of this reform is uh, the first half of the 20th century. So it takes about up until about the 1960s. That's when most of the reform is done because Al-Azhar kicks it off. And then later on, the British have other figures that they nominate to control Al-Azhar who follow an Abdus path like Mustafa al-Muraghi. And then later on, the Egyptian government that is established in the wake of, of decolonization uh, also has kind of a secular liberal ideology, so they continue on uh, with this same uh, process. But yeah, then what happens if Egypt becomes a model for all of these other countries across the Muslim world? So in Sudan, uh, in Nigeria, in Malaysia, uh, the British are doing similar things. And also the French and the Dutch are taking this as a model and they're kind of operating in a similar way. Extraordinary, extraordinary. So I was, I was just fascinated you mentioned Lord Cromer because he, he, he was a colossal figure in British imperialism in Africa, all over the, all over that continent, he, not just uh, in Egypt. Wasn't he that coined the phrase the white man's burden when it came to... I think uh, it was Rudyard Kipling, but certainly he had that, uh, certainly he has that idea. Like he very much, you're 100% correct. He very much, he's a major British theorist of imperialism and he's also a liberal. So throughout yeah. most of history, the notion of being liberal and the notion of authoritarian rule are not uh, contrary. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. believed that authoritarian rule is justified as long as it is needed to spread liberal values. So whether we're talking about 19th century Egypt or 18th century India, or perhaps the West, even within a Western country, if there's maybe resistance to certain forms of liberalization that would justify certain measures to kind of address address other currents which are seen as non-liberal in character. So maybe if you're living in France and you have someone who's resistant in terms of giving up their hijab or uh, giving up their adherence to specific Islamic teachings, you might have the state intervene more aggressively uh, to go ahead and move the population in a particular direction. Yeah, and I noticed in Britain today, I don't necessarily want to get into politics in today's world, of course, but I noticed in Britain today, the government or the state doesn't have to directly change Muslims' views. It doesn't have to explicitly say, well, we're welcome to change your religion. What they do is through education, through children's schooling, and, and so on, just gently... Um, introduce uh, some, some very different views and different ideologies uh, with the hope, I suppose, that you will mould young, uh, young kids' minds into a, a way that's much more conforming to secular liberal ideology. So you don't need to be openly aggressive. You can just do it, you know, in, in that way through the, through the system. Um, perhaps there's a more British way of doing it rather than banging people over the head. I don't know. But, um, um, so, so could you remind me, when did the British officially leave Egypt. When did it stop being a colony? I think it was the 1950s. I mean, you could check the exact date. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and I don't, I don't want to go into kind of today's world, but obviously, uh, generally speaking, did that trajectory that had been established under British rule, did that continue after that date or did it suddenly revert back to an older way of doing things? Well, I mean, this isn't so much of an Egypt issue. Uh, it's something which is found in all of the uh, Muslim countries across the world. So even in the wake of, even in the wake of uh, when the British or the French or the Dutch leave, uh, they are replaced by a elite, kind of a westernized elite. They make sure to hand power uh, to a particular elite. Um, so part of the indigenous population, but usually it's a part of the indigenous population that is, comparatively speaking, uh, more liberalized than the remainder of the population. And what these uh, populations will do is they will say, okay, we're going to rule this country the same way that the uh, British or the French or the Dutch were ruling the country. So in fact, the notion, uh, the specific doctrine that was used by the British and the French and the Dutch to Institute authoritarian rule was what was called the state of emergency. Um, so they uh, they claimed emergency powers. They said ordinarily, they said, you know, in a perfect world, we would give the population the right of freedom of association, of freedom of speech. We wouldn't kind of give them, we'd give them some kind of privacy. We wouldn't be surveilling everyone's homes and mosques and whatnot. However, if there is an emergency, if there is a danger of a rebellion, of an indigenous rebellion, everything can be canceled. Think of it like COVID as well. So if the, whenever there's some kind of danger, whenever there's some kind of extreme danger, whether it's a military invasion, a rebellion, economic collapse, pandemic, then the government has the right to say ordinary rights no longer hold. So that's, those are called emergency powers. So throughout the colonial period, the reason why all these figures saw themselves as liberals is because liberal ideology says liberal rights, unless there's some kind of state of, there's some kind of danger which introduces the state of emergency. So the state of emergency in the Muslim world was these people are going to rebel against us and they're going to stop the liberalization process. So in order to avert this rebellion, we need to go ahead and crack down on free speech, deny uh, democratic rights and everything, everything else. So what the colonial elites did in Egypt and other countries was they were complete. They said, we have the same ideology. So we're going to go ahead and put out a constitution that looks like, you know, the American constitution or the French constitution or whatever. Everyone is guaranteed these rights, except if there's a state of emergency. And actually, there is a state of emergency, and it's a state of emergency that's going to last 50 years, as long as, as long as necessary. So in Egypt, you have a context where there's kind of an ongoing state of emergency. Same in Indonesia, same in Pakistan. This is like characteristic of these countries right. is ongoing state of uh, emergency. And that state of emergency is used to justify this ongoing, these ongoing changes within Al-Azhar. So for instance, if you would, if you were to say, well, I don't want Maybe you're a member of the population and you say, well, I want to publish an article where I criticize some of these changes at Al-Azhar. I say that it's not, maybe you say, uh, I don't agree with them. They're not consistent with the Islamic tradition. Uh, well, you don't have free speech to do that because you're in a state of emergency. Once again, I'm not trying to single out Egypt. It's true and literally, uh, this is just a general feature of post-colonial politics in the Muslim world. But but now I mean you're just going to bring it up to date in a different a different way. Uh, Western countries 
don't usually militarily occupy Muslim. I mean, I know there are exceptions. We we took, we we mentioned Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya. Okay, it's quite a long list. But apart from all that, uh, the, the usual way is not simply to go in and colonize these countries and to kind of just sit there for indefinitely. It is. You mentioned development, so-called development aid. You mentioned other economic, cultural um, uh, hegemony, perhaps over the world through the media, through films, through internet, YouTube, and uh, Facebook, and so on, which seems to be ubiquitous and global now, and, and which is quite censorious. I mean, there are—I've uh, noticed there are some uh, opinions. I mean, it's good that there are some things that have been censored. Of course, we don't want rampant hate speech calling for the genocide of peoples. But there are other kinds of views which I've noticed, um, and there's some what mentioned their names. We all know there's some quite well-known Muslim um, apologists or, or uh, people who defend Islam um, who have been targeted and, and censored by certain forms of social media for expressing Muslim views, which are just part of the Muslim tradition. So it, it does seem that there is now, a, a, it's in a sense the same kind of hegemonic projection globally coming from the West, but perhaps no longer in explicitly colonial militaristic state ways, but through corporations, um, perhaps, um, I mentioned some of them, and soft power, so to speak, uh, the attempt to bring um, progress and in liberal values and human rights and so on to everyone in the world. And But it just seems to be much more, uh, not just universal, much more um, imminent in everyone's private life because we all have, you know, even I have my <laughs> iPhone, you know, so I, I can access all this now. And um, and this could be anywhere on the planet virtually. Um, so it, it's kind of more intimate, universal, and just ubiquitous than it was before. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that, that there are all these technologies that are playing a new role and how this power is projected. And this power was certainly not just, a, just a limited to military power, whether we're talking about the past or whether we're talking about today. But the nature of power is such. So someone might think that in order to have power over a country, what you need is like an official treaty where you say, okay, I'm France and I control this treaty. In fact, that's not actually what they did during colonialism. During the colonial period, they often pretended that they weren't controlling the country. So for instance, if you're talking about the British in India, they say, no, the Mughals are ruling. Up until the Sepoy Rebellion, up until the 1850s, they will say, no, actually, we're just agents, we're just advisors of the moguls, but the moguls are really the ones ruling. Or similarly, if you talk about, for instance, dynasties, Moroccan dynasty, Tunisian dynasty, various sultanates in, in Malaysia, or chiefdoms in sub-Saharan Africa, they will say, no, the chiefs and the sultans are really the ones who are ruling. We're not ruling. Uh, but behind the scenes, in retrospect, it's, it's recognized that uh, they were exerting forms of power that weren't formally uh, recognized. Um, and that's because power is less about having a formal uh, arrangement and more about just having an imbalance in one's ability to either uh, inflict harms or convey benefits. So the way in which I, if I wanted to convince someone to do something, like mow my lawn, I could either induce them with money, say, here's $5, please mow my lawn, or mow my lawn, or I will, will shoot you. What happens in the modern period is that due to modern technologies and forms of economic production, Western countries have an enormous 
have enormous amounts of money, which they can use to induce compliance, and also enormous amounts of military force, which they can also use to uh, induce compliance. And what you're talking about, whether we're talking about the colonial period or the period today, imagine that there was, was some kind of country that resisted liberalization. They could say, number one, if you really start resisting liberalization, we're going to invade you in the name of protecting human rights. And number two, even if we don't invade you, we're just going to make sure that you're boycotted. Not only are you going to be boycotted from Western economies, but we're going to make sure that there's a global boycott. You're not going to have food. You're not going to have medicine. Uh, so you either cooperate or there's going to be a social uh, destruction. So those, those can also be very powerful forces which are utilized without actually formally ruling over uh, a country. Mm-hmm. Although media, Facebook, YouTube, all of these other uh, media uh, co-op, uh, organizations, which are arguably uh, linked to intelligence organizations in certain countries, uh, also, of course, play a role. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because these public corporations are, are, are behind the scenes, I'm sure, connected to other agencies that are nothing to do with businesses and to do with uh, intelligence and so on. Uh, so there is this kind of... Uh, I just want to a slightly more kind of narrow question here about the, the academy in the West. I mean, what, what you're saying is, is, is absolutely fascinating and extremely um, helpful and insightful to get a, a, a more rounded geopolitical understanding of what's happening. But how common or how, how accepted is your analysis of, of its nature? Is it accepted within politics or anthropology or psychology or colonial historical studies? Is this gaining traction or is this still... Um, a minority perspective within a, a wider, perhaps more pro-Western orientated. Academy. I mean, it's a complex issue. Certainly I'm drawing on the scholarship of many, many other people. Uh, so when we're, whether we're talking about colonialism, whether we're talking about cognitive science, I mean, I try and uh, whether it's talking about kind of is- Islamic studies and Islamic reform, I really try and build on the work of other people I'd like to think that there's a little bit that I bring, uh, that I they have that I make a little bit of a new contribution, kind of how I bring things together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, kind of the overall view, um, the overall way that I've put things together is you know, somewhat somewhat distinct. Uh, however, there's widespread. Uh, in terms of just certain general points, I think there's widespread uh, recognition. So I do think there's a widespread recognition that we live in a world which is shaped by deep imbalances in power that result in a type of neo-colonialism. In terms of how this is linked to psychological transformation and some of these other issues, uh, this is a bit of a new thing because now we're talking about new forms of cognitive science research which have only uh, emerged over the past uh, two two to three uh, decades. I do think that they'll become more influential Mm -hmm. over over time, uh, but also even in terms that the notion that, you know, that there are potential military invasions, that, uh, that things like IMF loans and boycotts are used to project power, that control over social media companies is something that comes into play. If you talk about like Elon Musk getting Twitter and how this is, people are saying this raises national security issues. And, um, and the European Union are, are threatening to uh, cause major problems. He won't allow Twitter to operate in Europe if he, if he uh, has a different way of doing things. So it's very ominous and very public kind of threats made to him. Um, yeah, there's a deep, uh, 
there's a deep danger involved in social media from this standpoint of proponents of uh, the liberal project uh, as it exists today. Because imagine people start using social media to disseminate ideas which resonate with people's intuitions, or they use these ideas to preserve pre-modern traditions. So people are being exposed to other individuals, maybe uh, video clips of them, maybe even photos or videos of them praying and maintaining uh, their customs and their way of life. Uh, that's going to result in the persistence of, of these traditions. Uh, but if we're honest about these traditions, whether we're talking about the Islamic tradition or any other tradition, a Buddhist, Hindu, a Confucian, uh, many of these traditions are, 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 are to some extent inconsistent with liberalism. So this is why the notion of using social media to perpetuate them is a scene. No, we've had a, um, the world. I had a screen freeze for about five minutes there. I don't know if that's going to affect the recording, but um, could you just, um, you, you were mentioning about how, uh, which I didn't hear what you said subsequently, you mentioned how Confucianism and Hinduism, these traditional religions um, are, are um, perhaps, are you, were you going to go on saying how they could be, these views could be expressed in social media? And so paradoxically, you have the very media that is promoting a kind of liberal ideology gives that giving access to people who present narratives that are contrary to that. I mean, you have fragments of these traditions being preserved, but ultimately the values of the pre-modern, the values that are enshrined in these pre-modern religious traditions are to some extent, to a significant extent, not just the Islamic case, really every religious tradition in the world has values which conflict with modern liberal values, which are highly scientific in nature. Very, in, They really give a priority to individual freedom and critical thought uh, over and above every uh, other things. Um, and in this way, they are in tension with the religious character of pre-modern traditions, with the values that are placed on family and marriage in pre-modern traditions, with the emphasis that is placed on community uh, in pre-modern uh, traditions. And if you are able to use social media to go ahead and propagate these pre-modern traditions, it would cause issues uh, for mm. the development, for the, 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 the civilizing agenda of today, or what we might call kind of the international development agenda today, um, that would result in resistance to various Western regimes and various other regimes in the world, which are allied with liberal regimes. So that's why it's, I don't think, some people will laugh when people will say managing Twitter is a national security issue. I, I think that's very actually accurate. Uh, um, the notion that free speech is allowed has, uh, there's never been free speech in Western countries or Muslim countries or even in, in, in non-Muslim countries for these reasons. And if one understands the mechanisms of communication and law, one can see, I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that unlimited speech is a good no, thing, no, no, but I would say that limitations on free speech have historically been used over the past couple of hundred years uh, to advance a liberalizing project. Yeah, no, that, that, that's very true. And uh, I just come back to, I'm not going to mention uh, the names of people, but uh, there's a real ongoing issue at the moment with certain prominent Muslim 
um, uh, apologists or intellectuals who are, are, are have been deplatformed or are the process of being censored, and you end up censoring yourself. I, mean, I, I know certain Muslim scholars in Britain, for example, obviously won't mention their name, uh, who are very respectable academics, they're imams or whatever, and they self-censor, not because they have bad views, because they have mainstream Sunni normative views and they can't express them publicly on, on a number of issues because they're afraid of their jobs. Their, their universities would go for them. And I've had one incredibly prominent person who I won't mention who, who said to me before I even went on, on blogging theology, they said, Paul, there's some things uh, I cannot talk about because I have a job and I would lose it. And he is a tenure professor at an incredibly prestigious university. And he self-censored. And he's saying nothing that is not mainstream normative standard teaching in Islam and indeed found in many other religions as well. It's shocking. I'm, not, I'm no longer shocked because I'm kind of used to it now. But this is reality. People self-censor. It's not just external pressure. It's that they do it. They have to do it to survive, to have a home, to feed their families. And that's the reality of living in the free West today for many people, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, in reality, you just, I mean, the way that these regimes work is they create this situation where certain silences have to be observed. Hmm. And to the extent that one is able to talk about a tradition, it's kind of a liberalized recreation of a tradition that never existed before. So that's whether we talk about uh, modern forms of Islam, modern forms of Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, Christianity, whatever. If one is honest, the way that these traditions are presented in the public sphere has very little relationship to their pre-modern uh, configurations. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Uh, mm -hmm. But we have to be honest that in the political environment, uh, which characterizes modernity, simply speaking accurately about these traditions, let alone propagating them, uh, is a issue which is restricted uh, in various ways. Mm, yeah. Well, uh, perhaps, the, I mean, uh, in conclusion, I, I was invite you to make some final comments, but I, I, I do encourage uh, uh, everyone uh, to read uh, your article entitled Islam and the Cognitive Study of Colonialism, the Case of Religious and Educational Reform at Egypt's Al-Azhar, published by Cambridge University Press. I'll, as I said, I link it in the description below it's a fascinating read it's not too it's not inaccessible i didn't find it inaccessible at all i found it not well even entertaining um it was fascinating oh, and um, um and, and full of interesting examples and uh as you know very distinctive take on these you're combining um psychology anthropology religious studies uh, and so on so it, it was a uh, fascinating uh, history uh, fascinating kind of cornucopia of uh, um, uh, elements there, which I do recommend. So it, perhaps in conclusion, Eric, was there anything you wanted to say about your um, your article in the sense of uh, something that for the, to the viewers to take away from that? Well, well I hope that they find it. Uh, I hope that they find it interesting. I hope that they see its broader relevance to questions of modernity. Many of these challenges are not really unique to the Muslim community. Uh, they are prevalent. Uh, they face every. They face everyone. Basically, we are living in a world which seems to where political institutions seek to transform our consciousness or our psychology in particular ways and. But just worth reflecting on what the ultimate implications uh, of this are uh, and how to uh, 
how to face uh, these kind of challenges, because these type of challenges uh, arguably uh, don't leave a lot of space for any religious traditions or any cultures, uh, or perhaps even the human race itself, because it's tied to kind of maybe transhumanist, this kind of transhumanist tendency uh, that emerges from liberalism uh, itself. So uh, they're very... uh, it's a, these issues are somewhat provocative, but I enjoy it, talking about them and reflecting mm-hmm. them and mm-hmm. researching them in my scholarship. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. I was just reminded when you were going into off on a tangent here, when you were talking about that, the Catholic Church itself is going through internal convulsions and, uh, and arguments and stresses and strains over these very, very issues. Uh, recently to do the issues of sexuality with the the, the German um, Cardinal Marx speaking out, uh, publicly dissenting from the teaching of the church and uh, and the Vatican trying to hold the line in some way. And it, it's ripping apart or it's having internal um, effects within the church, uh, which obviously is mainly based in Europe, in Italy, in Vatican. So, um, mm-hmm. But anyway, I'm not going to go down that path, a different subject. But um, just to say thank you very much to... Um, uh, professor um, of Islamic Studies and Anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis, USA. And uh, for your um, fascinating article, do recommend it. It's in the link uh, to, in the description below. And just thank you for your time, sir, and your expertise. It's been a, an, an amazing experience. Thank you very much. It's been an honor, Paul. Thank you. Till next time. Saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.